Movement Rio Media presents A Few Good Physios with Dr. Eric Munoz and Dr. Leonidas Scantolides. You can't handle the truth. What is physical therapy? More research. More research. True therapeutic effect. Join us each week as we discuss current trends in medicine, rehabilitation, and strength and conditioning. The answers are out there. All content is a collaboration between On Point Sports Care and Integrated PT Squared. A Few Good Physios is not medical advice and is used for educational purposes only. If you are having pain and or health-related complaints, please seek out a licensed healthcare professional. Thank you for downloading. Enjoy. Here we go. Episode eight. Episode eight, the Ocho. The Ocho. <laughs> <laughs> the Ocho. I can't believe we did eight. eight yeah, this is crazy. Sixteen hours. That's ah. wow. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back. So today we're we're gonna be discussing having uh having some clinical commentary on the good old knee. Um and uh we might start off with some rants in the beginning, which we like to do. <laughs> Um, yep, healthcare rants. Healthcare rants. Yeah, there was there was some stuff. Well, there's always some news about healthcare and and medications and patients and patients not getting what they need to to live and things like that. And uh, from insurance companies, and two particular cases really caught my eye in the last month or so. Uh, this are uh, this was written in stat.com. If you don't follow. The news and stat.com. I highly recommend it. That they're a company that primarily just does um, healthcare news and they're very well known. And I think they were re- recently featured on the John Oliver show this last Sunday for uh, uh, an article they wrote about uh, medication, opioids, things like that. So it's pretty cool. Um, so this article is called ALS Patients Losing Time and Hope as they wait for insurers to cover a pricey new drug. This was published May 21st, 2018, and it's uh, about one particular patient who has ALS and her her physician had prescribed a drug, um, and that drug, I think it's called Radovica. Is I'm pronouncing that right? And it has been already has been approved by the FDA, uh, and the doctor prescribed it, and insurance denied it right off the bat for her to get reimbursed for it. So it the uh, the street price for that <laughs> the street price <laughs> is one hundred forty five thousand dollars. So I, I you know she's a um, she, she's someone who has a, a regular you know day to day job. She she can't afford this. I mean that's an outrageous price to pay for someone who was in her situation. And uh, she was actually very, if you read the article, she was very, um, what's the word, kind to the insurance companies. Uh, Just to quote her real quick, she wrote, I do understand that it's a business. I'm realistic. The drug company wants money to cover research, which we need and I support, she said. And the insurance company wants to keep costs down. I get all that, but I am shocked at the cost. There's no two ways around it. And the last thing an ALS patient needs is hoops to jump through. Everyone is wasting valuable time talking to insurance companies, end quote. I, I, I Obviously, I would definitely agree with her. I mean, it's uh, 
it, I think I agree with her more on the fact that they're wasting valuable time, wasting someone's life, actually. But I don't agree with her where she she understands it's a business. And these these drug, uh, sorry, these um, healthcare companies, they're not losing money. They're they're not like hurting for money. I, there might be a case for controlling costs, sure. But when something gets reviewed such as this, where this is more of like a life saving thing. That should be at the front of the line. That's more like, you know, you go to a hospital and they talk about like heart transplants and uh, other organ transplants, things like that. Those people go to the front of the line. And so it's just it's just really upsetting to to hear. And, and we see this as physical therapists on a very small level every day about how people now have uh, accommodated this new norm. They're trying to justify, oh, okay, that, you know, I understand that they have to control costs and, you know, my life can wait, things like that. I mean, th- I think that's it's a down a slippery slope. It's very dangerous. It can lead to other things. Um, but it's just really unfortunate to hear it. And I think, you know, towards the end of the article, they haven't, um, they interviewed a couple of uh, physicians and they also interviewed someone who teaches at Harvard Law. Um, and he's, this person had said, the problem is the way the system creates incentives for both Drug drug makers and insurers act as they do, and I I 100% agree with that. They the more they delay it, that will actually allow them to be incentivized for, to do that. If they were to immediately reimburse or immediately offer these kind of things, of course they would quote lose money on that or reimburse for that drug. But on the other hand, that would be exactly what they are supposed to be doing. Like that's their job. She she pays some sort of fee every month per year that she signed upon saying you're going to provide this kind of health coverage. And in my opinion, this is not what they're doing. They're doing exactly what they're not supposed to do. Right. I think um, somewhere on the fine line of Mm. this uh, policy, they probably had, you know, subject to their interpretation. Mm. And I guess it's basically, you know, large multinational or large national. Are are some of these guys multinational? Very large company. I think it's I think it's national. <laughs> national, very large company uh, against a small person that doesn't have the resources or the time to deal with it. Um, as this woman probably pointed out, there was probably a lot of back and forth, mm. um, and it sounds like her and her husband uh, went the calm intellectual route, um, and and probably hit you know their denial fell on the r- right table, and eventually I do believe that it was. Um, authorized, mm. but uh, why should, as Lee and I were discussing before we started the podcast, why should someone in that state have to even deal with this? Right, right. exactly. But um, you know, this is probably happening on the course of thousands of people. Uh, that brings us to another article that I just read uh, in the New York Times Health section, May nineteenth, uh, and this one is as insurance. Uh, the title of this is. As an insurer resists paying for, quote, avoidable ER visits, patients and doctors push back. Mm -hmm. So this, you know, it started off with um, a very relevant topic of a gentleman that um, thought he slipped a disc. (laughs) Um, His friend was an EMT and said, hey, you should go to the hospital. So this 37-year-old guy went and was found to be a back sprain with no signs of other serious injury. He was sent home. So a um, little later on, uh, Anthem was his insurance company, uh, refused to pay his medical bill of 
$100, saying that his care in the ER had not had not been needed right away to avoid a serious risk to health. Uh, so they made that assumption, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, which, which again, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you know, we do believe lower back pain can be held, you know, taken care of um, without medical assistance. Right. But uh, the lay person does not know that. that. That wasn't an option. That person thought something, you know, he fell to his knees. He couldn't walk. You know, he didn't know what was going on. And first option was to go in an ER. Right. And it, and also, it's kind of a weird situation because it's like, especially you go to the ER and you're denying after the fact and you have health insurance, for instance. Obviously, this is like fine, li- or um, what you call it, like the, uh, the fine print situation, right? Fine print. Because one would assume if you're going to go to the ER or, you know, whatever it is, and you have health insurance and uh, you see a doctor and you get examined and you rule out all the crazy things that they'll at least reimburse some of it, if not all of it. They should, you know, most carriers will reimburse all of it. But they're using it as like a doctor's visit that, he went on on his own that was not an emergency and that he knew felt, you know, f- you know, well, like he was informed by another medical practitioner, another doctor that this was not an emergency situation. Then he, w- you know what I mean? So right, it was right, like, right, right, right. that doesn't make sense to me. And it, it's, it's, it's really sad that they're trying to like use this information that we're not, we're all learning now about, um, you know, back pain and uh, spinal pain in general, and after certain things are ruled out, then you can go the conservative route, trying to use that against someone who is not as informed as, let's say, a medical practitioner is or clinician. Well, this leads us into the next little mm. topic on the same article. So Anthem has denied thousands of claims last year under its avoidable ER programs. According to a sample of ER uh, bills analyzed by... American College of Emergency Physicians, the program which Anthem has been rolling out in a handful of states in re- recent years, reviews claims based on the final diagnosis of patients, um, which Lee and I know those diagnoses sometimes <laughs> are not always accurate. Right. Uh, anyhow, emergency room physicians say that last year the company did not routinely request medical records for denied patients. Therefore, could not review symptoms that brought them to the ER. Anthem mm-hmm. says it's now... So they're just basing this denial off of a diagnosis code, not even the doctor's notes. That's crazy. Um, the company says the policy's goal is to reduce the use of ER... Depart- excuse me, emergency department, one of the most expensive places to receive medical care. Anthem recommends that patients with sprains and upper respiratory infections instead visit a primary care and urgent care or an urgent care center mm-hmm. instead you know. of the ER. Correct. Their mm-hmm. sh- which, as we know, they own. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so they 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 created that that group, the ER group, yeah. just to analyze these things and be like, how could we avoid treating these people that have come in for what we deem as unnecessary. And where is the conflict? In my opinion, where is the conflict of interest, right? right. If, if you have a third party, a true, right. true third party mm-hmm. physician, you know, that that's not on the bankroll, mm-hmm. then so be it. But as we know, uh, that I don't think that's the case. And this article clearly states that. Uh, they go on to go 
the article goes on to describe another situation of a gentleman that was having a panic attack and you know his pulse was 150 beats per minute oh. i thought i was dying and i needed to go to the r his second visit was covered because his diagnosis was breathing trouble anthem denied the claim for his first visit classified as a panic attack he he, he appealed mm. and eventually uh anthem paid so again this is a situation that we see in the pt world where yeah. They're initially denied, and if one has the perseverance, time, and um, is just focused on getting their point across, yes, the insurance company will, uh, may actually, may kind of reimburse. But again, you know, this just points back to um, how our system, you know, something has to give. This is uh, Aaron Brockovich all over the place. <laughs> yeah. So. This, uh, this, it goes on to, you know, under a federal law insurance Insurance uh, under federal law, mm. insurers can't limit coverage of emergency care if a prudent layperson would think he or she were experiencing a medical emergency. That standard was established in the 1990s, and the Affordable Care Act expanded the standard to apply to all workplace and individual plans in 2010. I don't know where that is now, but nearly every state has a similar standard. But the definition of the rule may be a little murky. Yeah. So, uh, really interesting stuff. Um, mm. Right up uh, the, our alley here on the podcast mm -hmm. and our personal experience. But um, yeah, it, it goes along. I mean, I just mentioned Aaron Brockovich. If you're not familiar with that, it's a great movie. Um, I don't know if that was the name of the movie, but I, I think it was. I think it was Aaron Brockovich. Yes, I think so. Um, Julia Roberts prayed. Uh, she portrayed this real life character and that that movie's based on true events but the whole theme of that movie I won't go into the whole thing but the main theme of it was um insurance companies will deny first always will deny first and then it will be up to the patient going through the condition to appeal and go through the whole appeal process which you know if you watch that movie you you get a sense that after those insurance companies lost so much money they kind of revamp things but Probably didn't. They probably no, didn't go too far. I mean, no, no, no. We, we we were just discussing a particular case right before the podcast started, and I think the most powerful tool that these guys use is unacknowledgement. Yes. So, so this unacknowledgement, this kind of we're going to put your case by the side. We'll, we'll think about that definition for a second. We'll send it up the chain, and that chain will take about three years <laughs> before <laughs> it comes back with an answer. And, and within that time, that you know the emergency medical condition might be sinister and all of a sudden you know a bad situation so what about the movie with uh, Denzel that was a great movie by the way which one um man it might have been man on fire when he goes and goes uh takes hostages in the hospital to get his son a liver transplant oh i don't remember the name of the movie i know what you're talking about yeah. um that was the man of fire was a different one he, he no. played an assassin with that one no that um, oh that was oh that yeah, was a good yeah one. that was a good one he but always no. plays a great role the negotiator was one of my favorite oh, i'm sorry that was no that was not uh that was uh samuel and that was kevin spacey um i'm, I'm thinking of like host, hostage situation <laughs> um but he uh, that's right i don't i don't remember the name of that one but it was it was definitely relevant cuz his son i think needed a liver right that kind of leads into the next story you want me to go into that go go for it go for it. Hey, oh no you can look at movies no I'll, I'll do it um oh of course it just went to the next one oh what is my phone 
<laughs> Sorry. Not so good. This, uh... Uh, well, this is somewhat relevant because uh, another article from CNN and they, uh, a woman who was needing a liver transplant because she had stage four colon cancer and the cancer spread to her liver, uh, ended up destroying her liver and she was physicians, you know, for her to continue on living, her physicians recommended a liver transplant and her insurer denied it. Um, and she had to write a lengthy letter to the insurers, which was United Healthcare, and uh, wrote directly to the CEO. I think eventually they approved it, but it was amazing to me that her case uh, they immediately denied. And if you want to look up the article, look up the details. The article is called Her Only Chance at Life is a New Liver, but her insurer said no. Then she wrote a powerful plea to the CEO. And again, the the same theme goes on because this all comes down to obviously money and costs, right? And efficiency and costs. But my argument would be how much are they losing per year of these things? And You, re, you watch the news. You watch any sort of financial times or anything like that. These health insurance companies are gigantic. I mean, how much – what year was it that uh, United Healthcare was the largest – um, not too long ago. Yeah. I mean, they're doing. They're all doing pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I I don't especially <clears throat> now, but um, even the last couple of years, they were still on top of their game, and they're they're not sitting there closing down shops and you know <laughs> laying people off. I, no, I, we haven't heard that news. If that's the case, then they need to expose that. But I, I haven't heard any of that. Anyways, it it's just really upsetting because on our end, we we see it from again a very small scale, even at the conservative management level, which is so insane to think about. These are le- the one patient situation with one drug, hundred forty five thousand dollars. The cost of that to accumulate that much money for PT, <laughs> I, I think it would be <laughs> nearly impossible. And they wanted to l- deny things like PT. That is incredible. I mean, think about that for a second. An average cost, like the most an insurance will pay uh, or, or or get charged for a PT appointment, let's say $500. Right. Let's say that. And then maybe the people who, the quote providers, but the clinicians uh, or the, the company will get like $300 or right. 250 That's one appointment. And maybe they're going to have at most six up to 16 let's say a worse cat let, let's worst say case, 16 16 all right i'm gonna have to whip up my calculator for that <laughs> because I, so but let's say that first appointment was uh 500 and these are again these are these are billed out um and then we have to add what would be average follow-up let's say like 300 250, 250? let's say 250 times 15 so that's three thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars plus the 500 dollars. so we got four thousand two hundred fifty yeah, and that's a con- that's a relatively high number on a reimbursement rate. That's an out of network number. That's an um, out of network number. Um, let's just yeah. So you got that. That's sixteen hundred com- hours. Right. Right. One thousand six hundred hours. Let's say out of network. Right. And let's compare a back surgery. Oh, back surgery. Oh, that's like that can range from what thirty thousand dollars. That's a like very low end, and up low to end. God knows what. Fifty. Yeah. Could be fifty, and I, that's I not including um well. Let, let's just say that's a package retail price, 
Um, <laughs> that's a retail price. So yeah, you guys do the numbers. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about who's losing, who's gaining there. Like, right. give me a break. If if you if that's the thing about these situations, nobody wants to sit down with a little graph, with a little chalkboard, write the shit down, and say like, all right, this is how much money you're gonna get, so much money you're gonna lose. And they're like, oh no, we're gonna we're gonna lose, you know, two or three points on our our stock prices. Right. You know, <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to buy that boat <coughs> I've always wanted, and mm. or my third boat. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you sound like a pilot. We know. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like a pilot. Oh man! By the way, the name of that movie was John Q. John Q. Yes. John Q. That was yeah, a, I didn't that see was it. A, that was a good. You got to see it, man. I love Denzel. I think yeah. he's awesome, man. Denzel's the man. Yeah, it was. A, it was a. It was one of his tear jerkers, but um, it was yeah, a good movie, man. Good Equalizer. Did you see the Equalizer? Yes, was that, that was intense. He played like another kind of uh, enforcer role. He's good in those. Training day. Sorry to be off topic. Let's get oh, back. Let's right. get back. We're gonna get back to our clinical commentary. So that was our. I. I don't. I don't know if you want to expand on the rant. Sure. Oh no. But, I mean that was it really. Yeah. I. I. I don't think this comes to any surprise to anybody who has, um, has experienced the, insurance companies. You know, ha- either has with their family members had tried to get reimbursement, or, um, you know, had to get reimbursement for themselves. And I, I'll give one quick personal story and uh this has you know i'm not talking anything bad about my physician that i go see i I love the practice that i go to but uh before while we were in school we had to um make sure everything was up to date with our um like immunizations immunizations um probably hep hep and uh tuberculosis yes so i had an out-of-date tuberculosis test So I had to go and get that, and everybody's, I'm sure, aware of it. You can just Google that test. They inject something into your arm, right? And then you have to go back like two or three days, and they analyze the swelling, right? right. Now, for the most part, a layperson at this point can go on their phone, type in ter- tuberculosis test result, and they can essentially look to see whether or not they have TB. Right. right. It's pretty simple. Very simple. And I, if someone thinks otherwise, definitely contact us because I'd be curious to know the reasoning. Anyway, so I, I had the initial appointment. They did all the initial tests. I had to go back for the follow-up. There was some sort of scheduling snafu when I got there. So uh, my doctor wasn't there. They were like, listen, we have a physician here, but he'll be available in the next 30 minutes. Do you mind if you meet with him? And I was like, yeah, that's totally fine. I knew what was needed to happen. He needed to sign my sheet so I could give it to my school and then also look at my arm. So he literally did not bring me in. He came out to the waiting area, and he looked at my arm, signed my sheet, and pay- I paid my co- copay and left. And I, w- I wasn't like, oh, my God, what's happening? This is terrible. I was just like, all right, great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I go back, and I look at my explanation of benefits, you know, weeks down the line. Sure enough, they charged. That was a regular office visit. So it's 500 bucks for them to do those two things. And guess how much the insurer Re- reimburse them 200 no no they were it was like over 90 it was it was a lot yeah it, they uh, they almost gave it looked like 100 percent to me four, in terms four, of, like 478 or something yeah crazy, right? and for some reason whatever insurance i had at that time uh, and at that point in the year i was covered so they paid they were to pay the whole thing so my question is in those situations where i could just easily like I understand that a physician had administered the test and they're going to have to look at it. Right. Gotcha. Great. But 
a regular office visit for that, you know, for them to just look at me in the waiting room and then sign some papers and then they're charging the insurance. So that's what drives me nuts about these kinds of things because there is no evaluation. Like if I if I literally talk to a patient for 30 minutes and I gave them information that we talk about in the podcast that every, you know, uh, good intention f- physiotherapist knows and w- wants to help the patient out, that information will last them a great deal of time and save them thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars off of visits and things like that. But I wouldn't be able to ever charge that much money no, for 30 minutes of information. Well, patient education, I don't even know if, I don't know if that's a reimbursable code. And I that's amazing so. to me. And so that, I mean, that's one of the things like that has to change with our profession is the fact it's that ignorance, ignorance. we don't even have an option to bill out education. I mean, it's only manual therapy, Therax, NeuroRead. Eastim uh, modality, all the ultrasound, crap. man. Ultrasound. You get, you get probably reimbursed. I'm sure they. Oh yeah, I, that's I think... why everybody uses ultrasound and Eastim. Yeah, and that is a good segue, kind of to a system change, or mm-hmm. where someone at the top of the food chain can be educated on. Hey, you know, pain science, patient education, just simple stuff. And um, I think it's no accident, though. I, I don't think there's any accident. I think it's. Uh, I'm not going to say it's purposeful, but it's that unacknowledged thing again. Right. They, they've seen it. They've seen, you know, the analysts see it, and the, the people who run the numbers are like, oh, yeah, but look at that. We're going to look over here for a little while, and you know, let's, we'll focus on this instead. I, you know what? As we've witnessed, um, mm. have witnessed on in certain occasions mm. that really the whole what you know doesn't matter, right. and the who you know matters, and I think it's going to take one of uh, the enlightened folks, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully, in the near future, anytime like now, mm. to get into the head of one of the executives. I mean, it has happened, as we know. Yeah, it's true. Um, and it's it's not necessarily the wrong person that was in the ear. It was just probably a less informed person or had a different perspective on uh, how we could um, implement change. Right. Uh, we see that we've witnessed that, and um, unfortunately, uh, it didn't work out. No, um, and now we're back, kind of going in a tailspin the other way, right? Where it's like, oh, unit that I don't want to get into the specifics of it, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, yeah, hopefully, something changes where a reimbursable a pain science or a pain science lecture, or pain, pain science education, or a D, what, what is uh, some of Butler's or no, the techniques they use? Um, in terms of the Dims and Sims stuff? Dims and Sims, or remember the whole sensory. Um, Mirabox therapy? Mirabox, not Mirabox. You know mm. that app that you could get the differentiation of left and right? And, yeah, I don't remember the name of it. I don't know the whole. I, I don't. The like laterality or whatever. Things like that where they have specific objective programs and you put your patient through it. I mean, it would be crazy for an in-network practice to spend twenty, thirty minutes and not even get paid for that, right? But why? Yeah. Why can't they? Well, that'll make it that that could basically take a patient that's going to be there for twenty-four visits and bring it down to two visits, right? You know, and maybe I, I'm maybe I'm generalizing and I'm simplifying, but I guess the huh. point I'm trying to make is something has to change. It does. I, and speaking on that, and I, I've been thinking about this ever since we had our podcast with Matt. And he, we were discussing a research study, and we kind of giggled when they were talking about the VAS scores. Um, and he said something. He's like, "Well, it's really hard to objectify pain 
they have to use that scale. And I, I thought he's right. He's absolutely right. You know, there's no other way of taking those measurements and, and studying it. And then it came to me, should we even be measuring pain anymore? That's a question I feel needs to come out. Because I 1,000% underst I understand people who are in a great deal of pain versus people who aren't in any pain at all. But you can measure that in so many other ways. And there was a joking measurement tool on Twitter by this guy named David Poulter. Oh, yeah. Um, and I don't remember the exact name he put it to, but he had it was like a facial scale, and it was always against a uh, squinting beaver. Oh, the little double wink. Uh, I think so, like Same double way. squinting, double uh, winking beaver, or something like that. And it, and he he actually created this, and obviously I don't think it became patented or anything, but a facial expression, like the pain face, the classic mm -hmm. quote, pain face. And it, I, also he had something else, the ability to talk and stuff like that. So that to me, that's kind of a little bit more accurate because a ten out of ten pain is completely misinterpreted. It's always misinterpreted, meaning like people are very confused about that. They're like. If you're literally able to say 10 out of 10 pain, you're definitely not in 10 out of 10 pain. So people try to use analogies like it's like pregnancy pain, like you're giving birth. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, we can relate to that, right? Right. And then that's <laughs> the other thing is that we can't even imagine that. We can't even imagine giving birth. So then and what? That's what a, and that's, I'm sorry. To cut no, you. no, please go ahead. That's a, that's a total relative thing to giving yes. birth. You can't, you know, certain women they all have a different experience so how could we say yeah, you're <laughs> treading some water man Who yeah i know no no <laughs> let me back up I'm that's a kidding. very relative yeah that's a very relative uh experience i guess it is. Uh, one would one would i'll never experience but continue <laughs> uh, so i mean in the, the, i remember my experience in the hospital where um we had this patient and i was a student and our, my instructor was having so much trouble interacting with this patient couple, and they were a particular kind. I, that meaning, like they, they were um, whatever. They they were at the hospital <laughs> in a certain <laughs> section of the hospital, and they wanted a lot of things. And the individual who just got injured was in a serious uh, in a serious accident. A lot of broken bones, a lot of other things happening. In nothing life threatening, but a lot of things that's going to cause pain. His spouse was adamant on informing us that hit, whenever we would ask what his level of pain was he would give us a number like you know like five six something like that she would immediately interrupt him and say like just remember his five or six is like a 12 for you <laughs> <laughs> and he and she literally said that every time and it's that's a gross misinterpretation of what the scale is i mean that that scale is supposed to be like clearly set to the person hey listen you know, 10 out of 10 is your worst imaginable pain for you. Obviously, like, you might have not experienced a terrible pain right now, but if you can imagine terrible pain for yourself, what would it be imagine. versus, like, zero? What would it be on the scale? So, like, you're trying to get some idea. But the main, if you listen to other physicians talk about the pain scale and they become truthful about it, it's for liability purposes. That's 100% what it's for. So that that's why I don't like to use it because I'm not there trying to always protect myself i'm there to try to treat the patient so you ask some simple things like what is this what are these symptoms preventing you from doing um you know what what did you were you you were previously able to do versus now you're not able to that that should give you a good indication of the level of disability that this symptom is causing and then obviously talk about the details of it but so i think in my opinion i asked a question before do should we measure pain anymore right. i think no I th I think no, in the sense that, um, it, like, let's say if someone's having a heart attack or something, 
go by symptomatology. You know, you got shortness of breath, you got extremely high blood pressure, you got pain down the arm. Do you have to say like, is it an eight out of ten pain down the arm versus a two out of ten pain down the arm? Good like, question is, do you feel hmm. impeding doom? <laughs> Remember that? Yes, that was like one of the symptoms. <laughs> oh man, that's a, that's a bad. That must be a, a horrible feeling. Yeah, like you're going to get hit by a freight train or something. Like it's coming. The, <laughs> to all the patients that I've uh, worked with that may be listening to this, I, hmm. I have been uh, guilty of using the the pain scale and saying on a zero out of ten, zero out of ten is no pain. Hmm. Ten is you feel like you need to go to the hospital. Where do you find? I mean, yes, I think it, th- I think that's key. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, um, and you know, we go into it, but what 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 happens when we start to start? Uh, Lee and I know many clinicians, mm. a tall guy, in particular, that used to <laughs> have this pain Sorry. conversation, um, and people. If I saw this other therapist um, patient. Uh, they would immediately, you start to um, get a rapport with the patient where they come to the session and the first thing that they say is, hey, how you doing? How, how are you feeling today? Uh, I think it's like a three today. Hmm. I mean, and, and that, this is something that all the pain um, science literature points to is this, you, you start to establish the normalcy of your interaction with this patient. And, and hmm. they, before they even get into the clinic, they're already thinking, well, when I see Eric, he's going to ask me about that number. Right. Oh, well, uh, it hasn't really hurt. That's like a, I think it's like a two. Mm-hmm. A- and I've had patients um, of the younger age uh, generation mm-hmm. where I ask them, hey, how are you feeling? How, you know, how, how have you been feeling? And how's, mm-hmm. you, how's your knee been doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, let, me, let, me, uh, let me think about it. And I, I stop them short. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, um, if you have to, I, I'm glad you have to think about it because yeah. that t- that tells me a lot. Yes, it, it sounds like you you know doing better. You're doing better. Mm-hmm. And now, now I'm leading them. I'm, I'm leading them into that. But no, I just tell them, hey, if you have to think about it, I don't want you to think about it. Just just tell me how you're feeling. You don't shouldn't have to reflect. And right. anyhow, um, that would be real pain because if you couldn't go up the steps, or your knee was buckling, right. or you couldn't turn your neck. You, you wouldn't have to reflect on it. You, yeah. you know it. You know. you know it hurt. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. Where it's about um, reorganizing the perspective. Yes. You know, it's true. Trying to, we talked about pain science and and redirecting that focus of um, the, the general redirecting the focus of their injury and their symptoms. If you're the clinician, that's like, what are you on the scale from zero to ten today? And that's the first thing that they say. You just directed their focus onto the pain again. So you just increase their pain response, and you just set up the treatment. You set up the tone for the treatment. And, and just like Eric, I have seen, and I continue to see clinicians who do that <laughs> every day. And they, the, when I, if, if I treat those patients, not because they're bad patients, it's just more like they're already in this mindset, and they're kind of shocked when I don't ask them what about. What's Damn. their yeah? I'm just like wow. So what what can you do today? Like what have you been able to do? And they're like, God, I didn't even really think about what I can do. I usually just think about what I can't do. All right, well that's a problem. I mean, you know, you, you should think about what you can do right now, or what you've been working on. I, I always try to identify litmus tests for the patients. Those litmus tests are super important. It, it empowers them. If I can identify at least one, then that is golden because I'm not giving them something they can obsessive 
obsessively go over like a movement every day, I give them like a real functional activity that's important to them that they have told me that, that we could work with. And that's usually changeable, not the fact they went from a seven to a two now, and that whole scale is flawed to begin with. So, I mean, they don't even un- usually one doesn't understand the uh, yeah, intricacies. On, on that perspective ch- shift, um, during I mean, recently, not even recently, I don't know, in the last couple of years, I guess, um, particularly during an evaluation, patients come in whatever issue they have, mm. shoulders, knee, whatever is troubling them, um, go over again what they can't do. Mm-hmm. And um, I often, in my little speech to them, tell tell them, listen, I, you know, I understand your shoulders where it's at right now, but I just want to highlight that the rest of you works, right? Yeah. You know, and and when when one gets injured, I mean, I could relate, Lee could relate. You don't think about what works, you know. Mm-hmm. Your mind definitely goes to the the issue, mm-hmm. um, but I think um, one of the healthy ways to kind of even reorganize the brain is kind of let it know that. Hey, your other shoulder works. Mm-hmm. Hey, your hips work. Hey, your foot works. And by the way, it all kind of works together. Mm-hmm. Why not kind of highlight the fact that those things work? Right. Uh, and and that that's not just by us telling them, but actually getting them to move all the parts of their body will help with the injured area. I mean, I'm simplifying this, and I don't want to bastardize it. No, but it's it's, it's, it's a shift in perspective. Yeah, and I I just had a funny thought because well, it's not that funny, but I've seen. Clinicians try to who haven't been fully educated on this stuff. They just like read about it or hear about it, like secondary, whatever, and they try to implement it with patients, and it's like really aggressive. Like they'll be there with their computer. They're like, "We well, shouldn't be worried about the pain. Don't be scared of pain. It's okay to be in pain." <laughs> <laughs> I hear these things, and I'm just like, "What are you saying to this person?" It's shouldn't not be scared of the pain. I mean, look. And, they, and they, they'll say things like, you just had surgery, you're going to have pain. You're going to have lots of like, yeah, I, <laughs> I, the, it, That's why it's hard for me to to keep my cool a lot, but that's fine. Uh, it's I guess it's good training for me. because oh, it is. <laughs> you see use. what not to do, what never <laughs> yeah. to. And you see the patient. You're seeing it from a very objective perspective, and you see them. The outside. You see the outside. You see the interaction. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't it's know. It's painful though. You don't have to go through that. No, no. no it, it was it You've was kind of a enough. rant last time. You've seen it all. Uh, um, let's move on to uh, the knee. The knee. Um, all right. So, <clears throat> who gets knee pain? Everyone. Everybody Everyone. does. Everyone gets knee pain. We learned in our uh, wonderful studying for the OCS. Um, not surprisingly, it's the number one arthritic joint in the body. And if you, they uh, how we learned it, we it was explained or at least uh, theorized to be why it was is it's undergoing the most stress throughout your life, and so the knee is kind of an intermediary between your ankle and your hip. Obviously, it's part of your whole body, but it it does have minimal movement in relation to those two other joints, the ankle and the hip. So be, when you have two very mobile and so, you know, most of the time they're very strong joints on uh, sandwiching a not so mobile joint and you undergo activity. Sometimes it could be excess stress in one area more than another. And sometimes that can wear down on certain things. And then also put uh, structures in place to get injured. Um, so the most common things we would see, I would say the two, uh, two more uh, common structures are the ACL and the meniscus. 
Yes. And um, in previous, um, actually, when we had Matt on, we went on to, uh, uh, we went into the whole. Um, oh, that's right. The meniscus. The meniscus sham study, mm-hmm. uh, which I've been sharing with patients. Nice. And they're, they're shaking their head because some of these patients have had surgery. And unfortunately, they have, not. I wouldn't call it complications, but it, it when someone uh, undergoes a meniscal uh, surgery, there are there's a higher probability of developing arthritis in the knee and right. joint restrictions, um, more so than those that haven't didn't get uh, the surgery. Correct. But, but uh, as Lee was saying, you know, the knee is a simple, seemingly simple joint, but the hip and the ankle are quite complex, quite mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, although the knee has some rotational component, the ankle and the hip are large rotational centers in the body, uh, particularly the talus mm-hmm. and the femoral acetabular joint. So, exactly. um, yeah, the knee uh, the knee is definitely subject to... I mean, and, and whenever we see a, a patient that is experiencing knee pain, you know, the first thing the uh, therapist should be doing is kind of taking a look above and below. Yeah. It's usually very... I wouldn't say I shouldn't say very clear. Often it's an influence of both, right? I mean, Correct. when when treating the knee, one should I think treat above and below. And it's interesting when I uh, have a patient who has like generalized knee pain, they haven't seen the doctor. This happened a number of times, and they don't know what's going on, and they come uh, to the clinic. I'll examine them and bring them through a bunch of battery of tests. And standing, then I lay on their have them lay on their back, and then start examining their hip movement. And they're like, you know, I have knee pain, right? And it's like, oh, yes, yes, for sure. Um, but I, And then go into this explanation that we just talked about now in terms of the relationship between hip movement, strength, mobility versus knee strength, mobility versus ankle, all this stuff. So it really surprises, I think, 90% of people that there's something going on other than their knee. And it's so funny. I, this is, again, the brain, when it comes to pain and injury, it really, Matt said this too in the podcast, you know, pain is usually not that important, but your body makes it really loud yes. and it's such like a huge danger signal. And, and since it, we don't experience it all the time, it becomes super important, but it also, it, it changes our um, relationship to perception and, and reality. Like you have something more than a knee. <laughs> your knee is not separated from you and across the room looking at you with like an angry face a lot of people amorphize i don't know if that's the right word amorphize or human things yeah, human yeah, characteristics yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah let, let's yeah, say that is. let's, let's say amorphize right. uh, like, we're gonna google that one <laughs> i know that, that's just sound, I, giving human qualities to the knee yes giving human <laughs> qualities to the name I'm sure there's a lot of English people, like the people who are really versed in vocabulary, like, what is wrong with these people? Um, but they, I, I think a lot of people do that. They All of a sudden, their knee becomes completely separate. And this is for any injury, any joint. It becomes completely separate from their body. And now it's just like a, quote, angry joint. And then it's just, it's, it's something that's now working against them. Like, it's it's against them. But I hate to break it to you, you're just hindering yourself and your your progress if you think that way so to help you reorganize that thought your that area in the body is now giving you some danger signals that you have to interpret those danger signals might be um, sinister they might be really important to look at or they might be completely benign how would you know well get examined 
you know, uh, understand the anatomy and the physiology and also have some some feedback for yourself because that's what being active is all about. Then you start to learn about, oh, I remember when I had that broken bone, I know what that felt like and I remember um, what I went through in the recovery and I know what it felt when I got started to get better. So like those kind of things, you could start to map out your body and you can really start to learn about yourself. Um, same thing goes for what we're talking about right now. Knee pain, so common. We see so many people with it. Um, we might have even seen 10,000 at this point. Oh, it might have been 10,000 <laughs> knees. Don't worry. You come to the right place. We know knees. We There's know a, knees. You come to... Yeah, we, we had a... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, right, right. right. <laughs> we'll go to the next top. But no... Uh, meniscus. So meniscus. what you said was like you might have a higher chance of arthritis down the road of getting a meniscectomy. Oh, I, especially... Um, those of ladder the ladder meniscal surgeries i had a gentleman that i think it was the late 70s mm. uh possibly early 80s that he had a meniscal surgery open i mean they they made a humongous scar and it, it looked like he had a knee replacement That's but weird. he just had a meniscal surgery and unfortunately this guy developed severe arthritis in his knee um yeah. he was you know he had um a relatively active life. I mean, actually, he ran multiple marathons after that surgery. Um, played tennis and golf. Um, had a he was a medical health professional, uh, but unfortunately, he really couldn't extend his knee. He had really limited range. Mm. He wound up having to. I mean, he avoided a knee surge. Excuse me, a knee replacement for about four or five years. Mm. Went the whole synvisc route. Good old Euflexa. Oh, boy. And um, unfortunately, the knee replacement was the best bet. So he wound up doing pretty well after the knee replacement. That's good. But um, but going back to the meniscal surgery, he had so much extra bone on his knee. I mean, it was... After? After. I mean, Mm. after the the meniscal surgery in the 80s. But again, that's... um, Things are different now. The meniscal surgery is not as intrusive, Mm -hmm. but still... um, as you could see, uh, if you listen to the last couple of podcasts, a lot of research is out there regarding saying there's no difference between you know meniscal surgery for some common meniscal tears, correct, um, and just a conservative measure or nothing actually. Hmm. Uh, now that being said, there are probably some severe meniscal t- tears and/or osseous bodies in the knee joint mm-hmm. that that may cause significant functional loss in terms of knee buckling, um, limited range of motion, swelling. Uh, Maybe there's a piece of that meniscus just scraping into the joint line. Um, All of that that would be relatively out of our scope, and Mm -hmm. we would not be able to objectively see that. Imaging would show that. And unfortunately, sometimes an exploratory orthoscopic surgery Mm -hmm. may reveal that, which, you know, that's another very controversial Mm-hmm. Um, thing. Hey, you know, I'm not sure. Let's just spend about fifty grand to look inside. Yeah, let's just take a look. We're gonna knock you out. You may Matt, die from the anesthesia. Matt put it perfectly. He's like, you wouldn't, you know, your contractor if we work on your house wouldn't just like tear your whole house apart just to see like, oh yeah, you need a new pipe over there, but right, right, we'll right. put all this back in. <laughs> like, and it's so true. Like, you wouldn't just, you know, why don't you, why don't you, why don't you really try to figure out what's happening? Before you do that, like you, you could, you know, x-ray, MRI, PT first, conservative management didn't work six weeks. All right. Well, now, like you're still having the same symptoms and it could be something else going on. 
But I mean, I, I would let's go over a little bit of the function of the meniscus. I feel like that's important, and it's yes. always a little bit of a surprise when I talk to patients about this. So, y- you have in each knee, you'll have two major menisci. So you have your medial and lateral. Medial is on the inside, lateral is on the outside. They're kind of like a crescent-shaped um, tissue. They're very, uh, they're similar to your labrum in your hip and your labrum in your shoulder. It's the same kind of collagen. Same kind of thickness and firmness against the bone. They're really the only thing that cushion um, your femur onto your tibia. And if you don't know, your femur is your thigh bone and your tibia is your shin bone. So those two guys make up your major knee joint, the tibia femoral joint. So uh, they, when they compress and rotate, or I should say when the knee compresses and rotate, the meniscus gets stressed. And so how a tear usually happens is when there's too much compression, too much rotation, and you start to just ride onto one medial or lateral, and that tissue will tear. And obviously, there's something called uh, repetitive uh, microtraumas, which has been theorized to kind of contribute to a meniscal tear. Um, but it's usually, we th- there's also uh, a macrotrauma. So just like one macrotrauma that it can be a car accident, it could be during like a high velocity impact during like something like football or uh, jumping out of a, a helicopter if you're in the military or something like that. Um, but the reason why it's kind of important for knee function is if the tear is big enough and that tear has a little flap and it starts to, what Eric mentioned before, kind of um, interrupt the normal joint mechanics of the knee, you'll get symptoms like uh, buckling while you're walking or during perfunctory movements, you know, walking around. Or something called locking. So, like, if you're just literally straightening your knee and you un, you're unable to unlock it, you're unable to bend it, then all of a sudden you're sitting there with a straight knee and you can't bend it. Now, those two things can be um, somewhat life-threatening and/or um, cause further injury. Let's say if you're going down a flight of stairs, knee buckles, knee locks, and then you have the injury to fall. Same thing walking down the street or in, let's say, New York, busy street, trying to cross the street, your knee buckles, you might fall on the street. Hit by a car. Yeah, I mean, high risk. (laughs) This is high risk stuff right there. Uh, So if those symptoms are persistent in the, you know, clinician that you're seeing, physician, they should be asking these kind of questions if you have these or not, because these are some, these are very important based on meniscal injuries. Um, Now, let's say if you, uh, Converse, we talked about, like sham studies and degenerative meniscal tears doing no better than um, conservative management compared to sham surgery. Conversely, when you talk about large meniscal tears and you have those symptoms of buckling and locking, you have swelling, and you have uh, the inability to straighten your knee, the inability to fully bend, and you've done a little bit of conservative management, even just as short as a couple weeks, then you might be, and you're somewhat young. You do have to be somewhat young for like a repair. They're not going to repair uh, like say like a sixty or seventy year old meniscus, that I don't think the outcomes would would be good because tissue viability. Um, but let's say twenties, thirties, maybe even forties. I've seen in the forties, but um, they'll try to repair it. And there's that, that's that's a longer rehab, so you have to do almost up to six months for that. Six months. There's <clears throat> there's typically um, depending on what they do. The, the surgeries vary wildly, you know, very, not wildly. <laughs> There's a wide variety of, of surgeries for meniscal repair, whether it's anchoring down the previous meniscus to snipping some of it, a meniscectomy, to sometimes what they do is they they do a micro fracture of your tibia. So they go into the, 
the, menisc- uh, the meniscus and drill small holes into the bone, and this is to promote uh, blood flow or just promote the healing, pro- excuse me, the healing inflammatory response. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do vary wildly, and as Lee was saying, that the rehab on it is pretty lengthy because most in most cases they do want some kind of either partial and or non weight bearing to the to the joint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, again, since it's like a primary um, uh, shock absorber for the knee joint, when you let's say do a traditional meniscectomy, the reason why there can be an early onset of arthritis is because you're now taking away. Uh, the primary shock absorber for the knee, and then what what else is going to be doing the shock absorbing? Well, now it's going to be the articular cartilage along the femur and or along the tibial plateau. But it's uh, it's an interesting thing, and, it, and that's why it's so important. Every, with anything else, it has to be really individualized. So you really have to look at everyone's particular case and make sure that they are not categorized as something that they might not do well in. And that's something that, it's good to know. And and just as um, going back to some of our other clinical commentaries, whether it was neck pain, um, lower back, you know, lumbar, cervical, uh, meniscal tears are, are small meniscal tears or, you know, non-symptomatic meniscal tears are relatively normal process of wear and tear. Correct. So if you have ran, if you have jumped, if you have kicked, if hmm. you have walked, Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you have a stiff ankle, maybe you have a stiff hip, maybe you have a combination of all that or yeah. none of that. Meniscal tears are a finding that are relatively normal um, in anybody over, I guess, 25 to 30 years old. Yeah, I, th- I think the study identified that, the um, sham study, and it was something crazy. I think it was like 28 years old. Like if you didn't have a meniscus tear, even whether it be like a really tiny one, then it's kind of abnormal. Um, and, and that's given the fact that what Eric just said, traditionally, let's say high school, even before high school, we are somewhat active. We're running around, we're twisting, we're we're bending, and it's not abnormal to have wear on the joints. And you should have a little wear. Like you're again, we talked about this before. Your skin doesn't look the same when you're forty or fifty <laughs> versus twenty. Your nails, your hair, all this oh. stuff, none, nothing looks the same, and that's fine. We're different. We're ever-changing cellular beings, and our brains are not the same. Our brains are changing constantly. We're so plastic. I was trying to explain this to a patient, and I, you know, we were having a fun conversation about how amazing the human body was, and she was in agreement, but I was trying to also elicit the fact that how you feel today, you know, that she was kind of going down the path of like, well, I feel like this for the rest of my life, you know, like neck pain and things like that, and, and you won't. One won't feel like either, you're not going to be in this dysfunction or pain state forever. The idea of impermanence is real. That That's something to always remember. And, and we're not saying this in some sort of way that we have never experienced these things. We're saying this in the opposite, actually. We experience, you know, I, I think we've all mentioned our injuries on this show already, but, you know, torn tendons, broken bones, ligaments, hips, uh, muscle strains, <laughs> hips, joint arthritis. I mean, we got it all. I mean, I, I've broken got fingers, broken fingers, broken fingers, <laughs> sprained fingers. I, I, I use that. <laughs> I feel like I've I've lived a full physical life, and, and I'm it's totally fine. I still I think I can still walk. I can still uh, participate in jujitsu. I mean, these things are great, um, and I'm going to do it until I can't. Absolutely. So it's interesting. Um, 
Another tissue that I think is important to talk about is uh, the ACL. Yes. Oh, boy, ACL tears. ACL tears can suck. Yeah. And when you hear ACL tear, you you immediately think, well, they're going to need surgery. But um, as we know, uh, and I think we've mentioned it with Matt, Mm. uh, many of them are non-operable. I mean, anecdotally, I'm going to bring up a case of a gentleman that I saw in his... I want to say his early 60s, um, very, you know, he's a pretty fit guy. He he was an avid runner. He, I think, ran, I don't know, 18 or 20 marathons after he tore his ACL. Wow. Uh, so he, he tore his ACL when I saw him 25, 30 years ago playing basketball, and he decided not to get surgery back then. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fast forward 30 years later, after all these marathons, he was not running as much. But he was told, listen, you know, either you, at this point, fixing the ACL is not going to make a difference, um, but maybe only a knee replacement down the road. Anyhow, point of the story is um, this guy had no ACL and ran multiple marathons. Um, uh, Going into the ACL and what it does, Mm. um, it's the primary, it connects the shin bone to the thigh bone for the lay person. Yep. It prevents your shin from moving forward when we extend or bend our leg. Mm -hmm. Um, It provides stability. It also provides uh, proprioception or it lets us know where we are in space. So it plays a pretty critical function in our um, lower body. It does, yeah. I mean, it's got a lot of receptors. All of our ligaments, it's one of many cruciate ligaments. So the ACL stands for anterior cruciate ligament. And then we have the PCL, which is the posterior cruciate ligament. We have the MCL, medial cruciate, LCL, which is lateral. So the ACL is the most common one that we'll see clinically, only because it's it's very uh, it's usually the weakest out of all of them, uh, next to I believe the MCL, and then it goes PCL, and then the LCL is the strongest. Yes, yeah. the, rarely rarely torn, although I have seen. You've seen, oh, I've seen two. One, 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 excuse oh. me. One from a basketball injury. And it, LCL definitely is a longer rehab than an ACL. And yeah. there could be it's a lot of complications on an LCL tear. Yeah. But as Lee was mentioning, ACL is fairly common, uh, fairly common tear because of the laxity. In certain positions, it can become very laxed. And then if you have a a force coming in, a medial force coming to the knee with the knee bent. It can go. It ruptures. Yeah, and I've seen zero LCLs. Eight, uh, LCLs, eight, yeah. LCLs, uh, so eight years of practice. I mean, that will give you an idea statistically how rare it is. Um, it's funny, Joe Rogan keeps, well, not keeps, but there, there was multiple times he mentioned uh, Ferguson, mm-hmm. uh, one of these fighters. I can't remember his first name right now, but he had to back out on a fight, I think, against... Um, Mr. Big Man, uh, McGregor, McGregor, I believe I, I might be getting this wrong. Uh, MMA fans, I'm sorry, but anyway, so he tore his uh, LCL, and he did it apparently by just walking. That's that's the story, which is mm. I don't that know about that. Been a training incident. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh, so they were talking about it, and they were talking about the rehab, and um, they were like, oh no, he'll never, it, most likely not be able to fight again, and it's gonna be a long rehab, absolutely. Um, they were talking. It had an avulsion fracture too. Apparently, it tore off the bone. Very. The gentleman that I saw had the same. Aha. Uh-huh. So I think that situation. Yeah, I think that's like a co- a common 
occurrence and an LCL because LCL is so friggin' strong. It's going to take the wallpaper with it after it comes Yo, off the, the wall. <laughs> that was a good description, man. Yeah, that, that wasn't me. That Was that you? That was that? me. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was my... Um, oh, that was your doctor. My so. hand specialist telling me like, yeah, it's not really fractured. <laughs> it's just got the wallpaper removed. Oh, the shit. wall is intact. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, so the, the why does the ACL commonly tear? It, just like Eric said, it could be subject to these forces during sport and it's not that strong as a structure um it does do important things but you can perform sport without it that, that's the key thing to remember is th- it is not absolutely clear with or without surgery what's the best route right now so like if you do a an article review or research um review of acl tears and um getting surgery versus non-surgery you'll find kind of two outcomes uh, people who go down the route of surgery and possibly have, quote, incomplete rehab, which is very common because of insurance denials, it's very related to what we were just talking about early in our rants. Uh, also, mis- uh, or, uh, misinformation given to the patient. They'll stop rehab before um, they need to. And it's it's usually a lengthy rehab. You should have physical therapy supervised rehab for up to six months yes. uh, at a minimum. Um and rarely insurance companies who are going to allow that. No, I, rarely. I've seen some ACL repairs, patients getting uh, approved, initially approved, nine to 12 visits. What? Uh, and, and and from there, what, what this means, that the route this usually goes is if someone gets authorized for, let's say, nine, let's say 10, the next time they'll be authorized for six or seven, Always and they'll less. get three to four, and then they'll start talking about home exercise. And as Lee mentioned... On an ACL repair, you know, the first, I mean, let's just go into an ACL repair to discuss. I mean, you have two options, whether you have some type of autograph from either your patella or your hamstring Mm -hmm. or another. No, that's usually what it is, most commonly. Oh, from um, an autograph? Yeah, hamstring, patella, quad. uh, God, what else is there? I I think that's it. That's it. And then the other option is a cadaver tendon. Right. and they, they could do whatever on cadaver. Yeah. They, so it usually, there's a long word that I can't pronounce, ligamentization. <laughs> ligamentization. Ligamentization. You just yeah. have to you have to mush the middle. And ligamentization. You make it... A little ligamentization. Yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> saying basically... judicial, judicial system. <laughs> so basically, this is pretty cool. They take, you know, you're taking a tendon or, yeah, you're taking a tendon and it's after a while, it turns into a ligament. That's the coolest thing, man. I mean, uh, like our bodies do that. Like it's just like, whoa, it's it's <laughs> it's, it's a wild. tendon where the ligament should be. We gotta change this. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's this, turn in. this goes into um, uh, FRC guy. With That's the right, body. Uh, Spina. Yeah, and and trans tensegrity. Tensegrity. That's yeah, such a cool it's, concept. It's, it's, that's a cool concept, and it ties into that. But anyway, that could take. And they don't fully understand how long this takes, but it could take one to two years. So for the first three months, you know, three or four months, that that tendon, that replacement is not um, pretty sturdy. So the implications of that, I think one of the key ones is the whole proprioception and balance. Yep. Um, aside from the actual stability, which typically is pretty solid by then, by three months, mm-hmm. uh, people typically just don't can't control that leg and another thing for whatever reason it's a phenomenon that when your acl goes or after surgery your vmo um typically 
the word inhibited is used. I know that's very controversial these days, but you know the person's quad strength immediately. The entire quad. The entire quad shuts down. That's all yeah. a non principle there. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, as Lee was saying, you're going to need some time on an ACL repair, and and a lot of it should be supervised. But there is going to be a point where I believe that you know after three months, a lot of it's going to be on the patient. Yeah. Um, Obviously, the therapist is going to be there to help with the kinks and, and to kind of refine um, some kind of compensatory pro, uh, patterns that exist after um, the surgery, uh, whether it's limping, hip. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things that could uh, could occur, but yeah. it's a pretty lengthy process. It is, and I think with the there was a um, recent research article that came out. It was a, a really well done uh, systematic review, and they combined a lot of ACL research articles and they looked at retear rates and they looked at return to sport and they were able to zero down the amount of time on the point of a month when to return to sport. Uh, uh, it was nine months. nine months. So nine months was the shortest amount of time that you could wait uh, statistically before you increased your rate of a uh, likelihood of a retear. And then anything after that was waiting too long. So they say that was like the Goldilocks zone. So nine months. So that's like now if you read all of the social media um, individuals, like our the PT leaders, they, they talk about that. And the people, there's like ACL specialists out there. They call them ACL specialists. But they, they uh, push this forward, meaning like by nine months, they should have all their prerequisites done, meaning obviously full range of motion, definitely 80 to 90% quad strength. Um, hamstring strength, glute strength, all that stuff. But then you have to talk about your sports skills. So, like, if you're a runner, you have to be able to do, like, single leg balance, single leg hopping, um, tolerate um, a little bit of high-intensity walking, for instance. If you're a soccer player, you definitely have to under- you have to be able to have some prerequisites for agility, lateral stability, stuff like that. So it de- very, it's very dependent on your, your sport. But at nine months, that is the safe amount of time to go back. So retear rates are pretty high. Uh, I guess before that and after that, and then like you said, the ligamentization. <laughs> said that well, and that, that I said it really me. fast. <laughs> and, um, it could go all the way up to two years. So like they found through uh, on a cellular level that tendon won't fully become a ligament all the way up to two years. So that's super important to know. Like that it's still quote undergoing cellular change and get a little compromised. So you'll read articles that you know professional athletes again back on the field like three months and four months and of course they have a whole team working with them eight hours a day yes but like they're the human body can only heal so quickly time yeah time. <laughs> like, we, all, we do need the time and one of uh, although that i think the jump the early jump and i've definitely seen this with many patients the early jump is because patients typically do feel better, uh, better. but on a cellular level um you know uh, it's hard to quantify that I mean, there are some uh, mechanical tests. What's that KT something where they pull? KT-1000? Yes. Uh, it sounds like something from South Park. Yeah. It's a, I mean, they literally <laughs> put your knee in this machine and they yank on the ACL. Yeah, it was, it, it's like a little, like, psh, psh, it, yeah. it, like it does a little anterior. Lockman, a little Lockman test. Exactly. Uh, mechanical Lockman test. Uh, but... As Lee said, you know, it really depends on the individual sport. Um, right. Yeah. And I yeah. think one of the other key c- concepts of this uh, tendon turning into a ligament is probably force and and stress. So, 
So this is yeah, another Spina yeah. quote. Yeah. Force is the language of cells. Very cool. And, it, and yeah. it's that's such a powerful quote because there's so much information in one sentence, but it's so true. So if you think about what Eric just said, like uh, if you guide this this healing tissue under certain forces, obviously in a progressive manner, it's going to become very strong, resilient, and thick. Versus, like, if you provide too much force and it becomes traumatized and has to undergo healing again, it's going to get weaker, and you keep doing that over and over again, it'll get weaker and weaker. So your body speaks to you during these times. It's going to give you information. You know That's why it's so super important to be body aware and also to go through some sort of movement practice, which we talked about before. I'm obsessed. I'm, I'm just, I sound, as Lee's talking, I have to admit, I'm just thinking of jujitsu. Jiu yeah, I'm like, oh, force. Yeah, eventually your hands get stronger. That's right. Oh, eventually, you know, you get slammed on your back. It doesn't hurt as much. You know, you don't right. shake. You don't feel like a bag of bones. You feel like, oh, I just fell. I'm okay. Um, it is amazing, though. Like, I, I learned up until that point, I, you know, I was a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. I did other martial arts. And I was like, oh, I got some pretty good body awareness. But then when we started, I was in, when I had first started and we were doing like an arm bar practice. And so over and over again, we're practicing this back and forth. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, oh, you can go further until I want to allow them to really feel that, that breaking point. And then for me too, it was like, how far can I go before I can let it go? So during the, the practice, I was totally fine. Like, I was tapping, whatever. Next day, I was like, my fucking elbow kills me. <laughs> Why did I do that? Why did I do that? So the next time we did it, I was like, all right, I learned that my tissue will not be able to tolerate if I allow it to go that far repetitively. Kamora. For me, oh, Kimura, was a Kamora. Yeah. I mean, I, I literally feel like I felt the joint capsule. I literally oh. feel the whole. It's and it's straining. And again, the cool thing is, two or three days later, I, I have to admit, I did take in a leave one of those three days. Yeah, that's all right. Fell asleep very well that night. Um, <laughs> it, it gets better, and like yeah. as Lee mentioned, now I won't, I won't go that route. No. I'm not. I'm gonna tap quick. Yeah. Uh, actually, Joe got me in a arm bar today. Yeah, nice. it was a good one today. I, and I was gonna, I, I fought it for a while, and I was like, ah, done, <laughs> done. But um, yeah, I mean, force. So going yeah. back to the ACL, you know, part of the rehab process is plenty of exercise, um, and just for the you know, the lay person that just wants to walk around, that's still going to involve some kind of cycling, some kind of squatting, some kind of lunging, some kind of um, balance, uh, lateral stability, core stability, integrating lower body, upper body, uh, counter rotate. I mean, it's going to, just for the lay person, just to move around, that should all be included. And then mm -hmm. level up, sports specific training would be uh, also important. Yeah, it was interesting. In our studies for the OCS, they really broke down um, ACL deficient knees versus getting surgery. Remember the uh, copers versus non-copers? Volleyball team, yeah. So the, yeah, the, the, there's, uh, for the layperson, there's, there's this concept in research where copers for the ACL deficient knee, they're identified as a group, they're a, usually athletes who can perform their athletic activity without uh, deficits in function or strength or loss of that sport skill versus non-copers who also are ACL deficient, but they are unable to compete again or perform their sports skill at a competitive level and or their, their deficits are significant leading to a disability or dysfunction. So usually the non-copers get surgery. The copers have a choice. And to become a coper or to be identified as a true 
ACL deficient coper, you have to go through quite a bit. You have to go nearly through six months of just exercise and perturbation training. And then you have to return to your, quote, level one, level two sport, which is an insane amount of hours. I remember we calculated it, and there's no adult, really, who would in, engage in that. If you had a nine-to-five job, it would be really impossible to do a level one sport. Do, um, are they braced at all? I would, uh, do. Some of them were, I think. Uh, let me just double-check that. that yeah. But I don't think for most of it, I think for the testing, they were braced. So when they did, like, the hop test, Mm. Um, and things like that. They would brace them up just for the safety's sake, but um, otherwise they just were running around. But um, it was interesting to us because it, it further strengthened this idea of people being able to function and perform sport without a ACL. And it is possible. We, we, we have personal friends who were, were ACL deficient for years, and they competed in, in their sport, and they would actually PR and things like weightlifting, um, and that's important to know. Like it, it can not bother you and not prevent you from doing your best um, at sport. It's really dependent on the person. I don't know why. I think I might have passed it here. They talk about the oats, all this stuff. The oats. Oh, the oats. Uh, anyway, that, uh, I guess I don't have it here. Um, but yeah, so the, uh, even though the ACL is gone, you still have other ligaments that will support. The risk is... Or you, you should be fully evaluated, see your function, your range of motion. Uh, one key takeaway that we learned during the OCS studies was knee extension is super important. Yes. If you were just to look at like two major things of the knee, about arthritis and you know knee health, uh, knee extension, and then also uh, your quad strength, like full, full, full quad strength. So having a really strong quad and your ability to fully straighten your knee without any issues, that's super important. That's, that's kind of like day one, actually. One of the primary goals from the first week or two are what Lee mentioned, quad strength and terminal knee extension, along with managing the swelling. Um, off, but I think the swelling in the current research is a little less important. I, I found it really interesting that you know, I was taught in, uh, that Swelling in the knee can cause inhibi uh, inhibition of your VMO or your quad. <laughs> um, and the, the latest research found that to be false, actually. So, um, sorry, guys. That's interesting. <laughs> it yeah, was very interesting. Surprises. I mean, we, you know, it was, it's definitely on the ACL protocols on the first thing you want to manage. Manage your swelling, manage pain. I don't know how we, one does that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then terminal knee extension and, and quad strain. Yeah, so isn't that amazing? If you think about that for a second, like we when we get a like day one post op ACL, right. how much are you sitting there educating them about? Like for the most part, like you're looking at range of motion, you're looking at strength, you're looking at all the functional stuff. The pain's going to go down no matter what. Right, it's going to go down. Like you're not going to be like, oh, I'm eight out of ten pain day one after the surgery. You're not going to be eight out of ten pain th three weeks from now unless something there's a complication. Understandably right. so. Uh, anyway, so it goes back to the in the important question of should we measure pain anymore? Um, so I found the Cobra thing. So they would screen these people, and they would have them do. I'm not going to go through each one, but they have them do a bunch of hop tests and single link stability tests. And if they pass with a uh, a score that was in within range of somewhat normal or strong, then they would return to the level one, level two sport. Uh, and again, this was before all that. They were going through a perturbation program that lasted a couple months. So then they go through these tests. Then they would re return to the level one, level two sport, 
for a full year to be considered a true coper. So just to define level one sport, jumping, cutting, pivoting, 50 hours or more per year, soccer, football, basketball, and just to calculate average soccer game might be about 90 minutes or so for like a, an adult soccer game. So that's about 32 soccer games a year. So you do the math if you're a soccer player and if you're playing that many games that you know during the full game we're talking 50 hours i'm i I estimated if the person played the entire game uh for football it's like 25 games that's a lot of games per year for basketball it's like 25 up to 60 games depending on how long it takes um level two sports is more like lateral motion specific not necessarily jumping so we're talking like racket sports and skiing they did not give the amount of hours per year um but those two things kind of put it in perspective for me because I was like, all right, well, we're talking to someone who might go skiing, you know, two weeks a year. You know, that's right. that's not anywhere near the close to 50 hours or whatever it is. But they still need to perform that activity. We'll get them ready to do that. But that those kind of things need to be understood before making the decision whether or not uh, undergoing surgery. Yeah, it's... um. It's obviously a big decision, and it's one that's pretty personal. Um, but I, I do think that a majority of the population does not know that um, if you completely tear your ACL, um, surgery, you know, is it, somewhat optional. Yeah. Um, I would say that most, you know, including myself, I would say that I, we learned about copers in school, but it really wasn't a highlighted situation no. and only only in clinical practice and and studying for uh, the OCS um <laughs> uh that was brought to light right so what other uh, injuries do we have here Ooh. meniscus ACLs we got dislocated patellas dislocated patellas so <laughs> poor, poor poor um patella often uh, there are some people with laxity in their patella that I would how would we describe this one? Uh, well, the patella is the kneecap. Uh, it's the largest sesamoid bone in the body. Sesamoid literally means that it's not directly attached to anything in particular. It's fr- kind of free floating. Um, <laughs> free floating, just. I thought, yeah, I thought that's what it meant as a sesamoid bone. I might be wrong about that because we have our little sesamoid bones at the bottom of our feet. Right. But then I think they're somewhat attached. They they provide attachment points for muscles. Right. And then. Yeah, patella kind of sits in a sack. Um, <laughs> yeah. And put lateral and medial retinaculum, and then the patella tendon. Quad tendon. Quad tendon. And its main function is to provide, uh, it's like the wheelbarrow effect for the knee. So if you didn't have your patella, your quad would undergo so much stress just to straighten your knee. It'd be incredible because there'd be no little intermediary point there where. You know, like with a wheelbarrow, you have uh, the wheels there to lift a really heavy weight, and it has a, a better lever arm. Same thing goes for your quad. If you have that kind of shorter lever arm there, or I guess a technically longer one, you're going to have a lot more mechanical advantage. Yes. Um, so that allows us to do other things. That's what makes the uh, the knee very smart. Uh, yeah, yes, and and unfortunately, many people, well, not many people, we've all encountered patients that have recurrent dislocating patellas yeah and that has led to many surgeries that are i mean i I haven't seen a positive i haven't seen a positive outcome where they do a lateral release of your it band or the tissue in that area i guess or they do the 
Volker. I don't know the exact name, but oh, the MPFL reconstruction, yes. medial ligament yeah. reconstruction. Yeah, I mean that that stuff's interesting to me because I've seen just a handful. I see way less of it more. I'm uh, sorry, I see way less of it now than I did when I first when we first started treating in 2010. But um, yeah, so like if if one were to if you're first of all a, a patellar dislocation again similar to shoulder dislocation it's when the kneecap or the patella completely slips out it's usually laterally or away from the midline of the body and it has to be manually put back in so during that slipping out or that dislocation you're going to have some tearing on the retinaculum on the inside and you might have some stiffness or reinforcement of stiffness on the outside but the theory of why people would uh, you know surgeons would propose a lateral retinacular release is because uh, it's that pathoanatomical model where the IT band or the outside lateral or the lateral retinaculum is too stiff, pulling the patellar out without enough um, strength on the inside to keep it in. And as you said, there was there's really not great outcomes from that. Yeah, because if you release um, the lateral aspect of the quad or the IT band, you know, chances are that fascia is going to grow back somewhat scarred. Not chances are. It's definitely going to, depending on the person's scarring mm-hmm. pattern, uh, then, you know, it goes back to the cause of the cause. Why was the lateral aspect tight or shortened? Or why was there a lateral uh, bias on the patella? Typically, it's something going on at the hip. Mm-hmm. So if one has a... Um, poor hip stability, um, typically the anterior anterior muscles would kind of take over, let's say TFL, vastus lateralis, uh, to help stabilize your hip and knee. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this is totally theoretical on a biomechanical model, right. uh, but the truth is it's, it wasn't just the patella. Right? Right. I mean, there was something else going on. And these patients typically have uh, poor ankle mobility. Right. Um, so anyway, the patella, we're describing one of the worst case scenarios on a patella subluxation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think more commonly um, seen, uh, we have a label that kind of does, doesn't mean much, but patellofemoral syndrome. Oh yeah, which we could see as a very common diagnosis. It was interesting that like, you know, who knows where this came from, but why would you call it a syndrome? It's just like a very non-specific painful knee. Some are, are might be pointing to the root cause of your, your kneecap is the root cause of this issue where it's not. I, I guess it bothers me a lot when when individuals get X-rays and then their you know their X-ray report says like oh their patella is out of line or whatever. I mean it's that that's been shown to be um, not inaccurate, but it's been shown to not be correlated with symptoms. So like. It's similar to herniated discs. Yes. So uh, that's not a strong indication that there's something going on. Now, if you have, um, I have seen some videos. I haven't seen this clinically myself, but it's definitely always these individual cases where someone would be sitting on a knee with a leg hanging off. And when they go to straighten and bend their knee without them touching their kneecap, it literally slips out of the socket and snaps right back in, but without them touching it. Now that that's a kind of that's a very unique case in this particular case, and it, there's usually something anatomical happening everywhere else, like femur, uh, tibia. You know, it's not just the kneecap itself; it's not just the IT band. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yes. Um, so that that probably would need some stabilization, but obviously, or not obviously, it would 
it would behoove that person to undergo some sort of bracing first and maybe some strengthening, see what result they would get out of that. If they get the same result after a really concerted effort, three months, six months, then they can maybe get some tightening going on with surgery, something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I am. I, um, I we you know we hear this patella tracking issue. Yeah. Uh, repetitively again, clinically, the way it would probably present itself is stairs, uh, up or down. Typically, down worse than up. Mm-hmm. Um, oh no, not really. Both. Yeah. That's the most patella compression. So this this thing of alignment, um, I've definitely strayed away from the whole language of alignment. And um, this taping help McConnell taping. Um, seen some good results with that, and I and I really think the and even McConnell themselves. I think uh, speaking to a colleague, a tall colleague of mine, um, he he was under the impression that you know the initial biomechanical reasoning behind McConnell taping, quote placing the patella in alignment, right. was relatively false. What it probably does is take off some kind of me- mechanical stress, mm-hmm. um, and potentially help quad activation um, with that little fold, mm-hmm. a little fold in the side. Mm-hmm. But um, we again, we don't really understand why it works. It, it does. It is a, a great tool for those with nonspecific knee pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and people often want to get taped and taped, and I I usually stray away. I mean, usually after one or two visits, mm. if that they gave them a little relief, it, it allows them to kind of get back into some kind of activity and uh, work on other stuff. Yeah. I think they've if shown through research, they've been able to kind of narrow down that it gives a, a really good psychological feedback. It just gives more support. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I've been taped a bunch, and I feel so much better when I get taped, especially ankles, shoulder, whatever it is. And it, it, it is a little bit more stability to the area. It makes you more comfortable. I know there was a big taping thing for one of the Olympics, and everyone all of a sudden discovered kinesio tape, even though kinesio tape has been around since the late 1960s. Wow, I didn't I, even know it was around that late. Oh yeah, man. If you if you look at the inventor, um, I think he was over in Japan. I learned about kinesio Kenzo tape. Was that Kenzo? Some. I think so. I think it was a K. Uh, I learned about kinesio tape when I was doing my volunteer work at Mount Sinai. And one of the OT, the head of the OT department, she whipped out K tape, uh, kinesio tape because she was going to do like an in-service to the rest of her team. And so she used me as a, um, you know, someone who was uh, going to get the kinesis tape on it. But it was interesting in that facility, or in that setting, because that's how it re- originally came about. Uh, either a physician or an occupational therapist kept seeing individuals who just had a stroke. And one of the common things that happen after a stroke is a subluxation of the shoulder. And so... Sure, that's the, cool. the shoulder would just literally hang out of the socket. So they use kinesio tape to really pull it back in. And then while they're taped, they have them do functional activities. And that and has some neural response where then, then they can do certain things during the rehab to help them move and engage their strength, things like that, change the brain. Um, but now it's kind of gone off another end where, you know, these people don't have neurocompromise. They don't have strokes. They're just there to like they're their shoulders are not feeling as strong as it could be and tape them up all this stuff. So that's where it gets a little wonky. And that's why I think the research is sh- showing like there isn't a solid uh, mechanical effect because there's not like if they were to grab a bunch of patients who just had strokes, possibly that they could probably show a significant improvement from there, but not athletes and 
uh, you know, the general person who general population. No, I, I mean, I I use it. I use uh, I actually use rock tape now for some reason. A little stronger. A little stronger. Mm-hmm. Glue is a little better. Uh, Luco tape, but I, I use I guess taping in general. Um, if you use canvas tape, I think there is a little uh, somewhat depending on what you're taping, right? Mm-hmm. Um, stability, like let's say in an ankle. But um, I agree that there's some kind of neural input from there. People usually feel good with tape. Yeah. And if they don't feel good from tape, they will know quite quickly. <laughs> um, I have had a couple of clients, patients and clients, um, have kind of a, a skin response. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so and That could be very inhibiting for the rehab process. Absolutely, because now mm-hmm. you just now you got some kind of rash and now you, this manual work can't be done. The person mm-hmm. now has... You know, you got the whole opposite effect. It right. wasn't a positive neural input to this person. So it's increased focus to that area. Exactly. Now you got to get some cream or something. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, be cautious when using tape. Uh, I always, I, I ask people right away, I'm like, do you have any skin reactions, skin allergies to glue, to sticky things? Uh, do you, do you have sensitive skin, things like that? If, if patients are saying yes to any of those things. I'm like, all right, well. We'll we'll do a trial run. We'll just stick a piece of tape on a little piece of your skin somewhere else or something, whatever. Anyway. It's a good, yeah. So taping that knee. So patella, patella femoral syndrome, dislocated patella is pretty common. Uh, well, patella femoral syndrome, whatever mm-hmm. that means, uh, is pretty common. Dislocated knee patellas are less common, but mm-hmm. they're out there. Chondral lesions, what do you want to? Oh, chondral lesions. Yeah, if we have time to talk about that, the... So talk about chondral lesions. So if you imagine the end of the femur, there are these two uh, knuckles called the femoral condyles, and there's medial and lateral, and the medial sits on top of the medial meniscus, the lateral sits on top of the lateral meniscus. And sometimes it, they don't know exactly why. There can be one condyle that gets worn down more than another. They're covered with articular cartilage. And so when you get a lesion, that's literally a, an immediate breakdown of that articular cartilage and then more true bone is exposed. So then all of a sudden, you have taken away one layer of cushion, and you have exposed tissue or exposed bone that's not supposed to take the brunt of force, and now it is. So the risk of that, if it's a big enough lesion, can be fracturing of the bone, and then it also can be a development of osteonecrosis. So those two things are somewhat of an emergency because then that can compromise your limb overall. So what they'll do, there's many different options. If you have like a severe case of it, um, you'll get, you know, usually they involve stem cells, but basically a stuffing of that hole of stem cells, some of your own cells, and they'll have some, you know, some procedures, they'll have a, a solution called a snot. And well, that's that's the technical term, a snot. Snot uh, is a combination of cells that get jammed inside the hole and then it will grow in that transplant to your own uh, tissue. Or to your own cartilage. Yeah, so very, um, uh, I want to say relatively experimental. I mean. It is. I don't think any of them are covered yet. Yeah, see, these they're, they're doing these things. We've seen them for the last seven or eight years. Um, mm-hmm. Here in New York, there's definitely a few doctors that perform them. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's, it varies um, in terms of uh, the result. Right. Um, but chondral lesions are typically not a good thing. I'm sure we have asymptomatic chondral lesions. Yeah, that's the other thing, too. It's super important to understand that. Is uh, Let's say if you get an MRI or X-ray and they, they show this, but you don't have any symptoms, and let's say 
Um, other things are intact. They usually don't want to do anything with it. No. Um, <clears throat> the people who do get surgeries are the ones who have pretty bad symptoms. And that is they do activity, they get really bad swelling and pain, then they have they're unable to walk without extreme difficulty for several days and they have other things like maybe other structures that are involved like meniscus or a previous ACL tear or something like that. Then they're a little bit more compromised. They're more likely to injure that bone further so they want to address that right away if they want to continue that activity. But not everybody's in that same boat. So like Eric said, I've had patients definitely they would have just minimal amount of pain, full range of motion, full strength, uh, everything else intact. They go in for an MRI, they find a chondral lesion uh, classified as not like a severe one, be left alone. Right. They wouldn't do anything. The cost is high for the surgery and the, the rehab is long. Not worth it. We got cinco. Cinco minutos. Cinco minutos. And I think the OA is probably another uh, very common, uh, osteoarthritis is another common um, knee injury slash condition. Um, yeah. And it can be relatively severe, um, you, typically in an older population. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily. Not necessarily. I'm sure there's younger individuals with knee OA, but can be painful. Can inhibit uh, mobility. Can inhibit that everything that encompasses mobility. Right. So mm-hmm. walking, stepping, sports. Um, there's some swelling involved. There are some range of motion limitations um, in some severe cases. Uh, you want to add to this good old knee OA? Yeah. I, again, it's a very common thing to have happen when you get older. A good PT online said, like, you're going to have wear on the most um, uh, moved joint in your body. I mean, that, that you, not necessarily tear, but definitely wear. And it's like your hair getting gray. It's like your skin changing, everything else. Now, the the level of... That wear, that's going to be, it should be examined by a clinician and your function and things like that and your range of motion. But if you have full range, full strength, you're able to do everything you want to do, intervention is not, might not help you. So what might help you, what we discussed in previous podcasts, is undergoing a regular strengthening program. Absolutely. And if if that does not work and you have... You attempted to move and you attempted to see a clinician. And the next step, well, the intermediary step to buy you a little time might be what's somewhat, in my opinion, somewhat overutilized, but um, some kind of uh, synthetic lubricant. That's that's up in the air, in my opinion. (sighs) Yeah, so um, you could squirt some uh, chicken (laughs) knuckles uh, into your... Isn't it know. lentils? No, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So there, there are there are some uh, synthetic synovial fluids that you one could put in, but uh, as I just said, you're buying. You may be buying some time, and, and that is right. um, unproven at the time. Correct. So the next step would be a total knee replacement, which they're um, pretty routine. I've actually saw one in school. It was pretty cool. Um, uh, you know, it's a surgery. It's a pretty intense surgery. Yeah, it's so carpentry. If anybody wants to check it out, check it out online. But it involves shaving off, well, sawing off uh, the top of your tibia. Mm-hmm. Then, and this is one, I guess, I'm, I'm mentioning one method, but shaving off the top of the tibia, uh, shaving off the top of your femoral, a femoral head, 
They'll they'll the do they'll, condals. yeah the condals they'll they'll shave away whatever is worn down enough, so right. then they'll replace it with hardware. Yes, titanium. Uh, typically, those uh, ligaments that we were just discussing are not there. Uh, there's two or three different methods, whether it is muscular driven or something else driven. Um, don't quote me on that, but the outcomes on a total knee replacement, you know, are, are relatively good. Um, mm. and I think it, it, it varies just like anything else. Uh, but if there is an active individual that has a knee replacement, it typically work out. Now there are the complicate the complications to any kind of joint replacement. Uh, if one is a bit overweight, obese, another a huge complication because, um, what probably got them there is, is, uh, that's so probably we, one of the factors. Mm. So I think that losing, I think, was it 20 pounds? Oh, in terms of correlation of force? Yeah. It's was... insane, yeah. Like, uh, oh, God, that's a statistic I'd love to be able to repeat. But I would say, I think they did 10 pounds. 10 pounds, and it was on OA. I think it wasn't even on a knee replacement. It was yeah. an individual that had osteoarthritis on the knee. Correct. And basically, by losing 10 or 20 pounds, it, it reduced the force through the knee. And most importantly, it reduced the patient's experience of pain. Exactly. Um, so total knee replacements. Oh, I got it right here. Come. There we go. Uh, 13.5 pounds weight loss associated with moderate improvements in pain and function. So just weight loss in general, not even rehab. Um, the upper 20% of weight distribution have greater than... I can't even read my own handwriting. <laughs> uh, greater than 10 times more risk of OA compared to the lowest 20%. So, yeah, so if you're in like the upper 20% of someone uh, in terms of their weight distribution or uh, let's say the levels of obesity or overweightness, you'll have a, a 10 times more risk versus the lowest. But that just gives the importance of the amount of force going to the, the joints. Correct, correct. Uh, and then just... Yeah, so I mean, so the knee, knee replacements. Then there are also some partial knee replacements, as Lee was just mentioning. Often it's just one compartment of the knee, right, mm-hmm. um, that has having the issue. Those are, they, they actually have fairly uh, good outcomes, and the rehab process on that is fairly quick because there's less irritated tissue. Right. Um, so when talking about the knee, we want to rule out some some non-related knee issues, which might be stemming from some kind of uh, lumbar issue. So ruling out numbness, tingling, and staff. Yeah, I saw that we that was we, a case that recently happened, but I don't know if we have time for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We so will revisit it again. We'll revisit it, but we'll, we, all these clinical commentaries we're always going to have part two, part three, right. part. And we 18. do got to go back to the shoulder. Yeah, we we got to go back. We 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 yeah. went on a rant last week. And That's right. We didn't get to that shoulder, but that it's all good. Yes. So join us next week when we have another guest. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Signing off. All right. Thank you for listening. Signing off. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to a few good physios. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Follow us each week while we interview guests and have clinical commentary. 